Well, good morning. Good morning. We've uh, come to our last message in kind of this short series. It's only been three weeks long. Real mature, experiencing lasting life change by growing up in Jesus. Now, I'm wondering how many of you have felt encouraged by this series? And I don't want to do a show of hands because I don't want to be discouraged. (laughs) I know sometimes when we focus on what we should be doing in Christ, how we should be living, uh, it, can be, it can be less than encouraging. It can be easy to get overwhelmed. It can be easy to start to feel like a failure as, as Christians. And I suspect, as Wes shared, where we were kind of headed this morning about engaging in the mission of Jesus, that many of you, if not most of you, kind of thought, okay, here we go. Another message where the pastor's going to get up and make me feel like a garbage Christian because I'm not doing what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm guessing that most of you are less than excited, right? I haven't read my Bible enough this week. I don't share my faith the way that I want to. I don't serve in this place or that place. I, I haven't moved to Africa. I don't have 10 kids, adopted orphans living in my family. I don't give enough money. Here we go. Another message about how I'm not doing enough. This is not going to be one of those messages, okay? I want you to be encouraged this morning. And I've prayed a lot about what the Lord would have me say to you. I pray every week, but for some reason, honestly, what I had planned to preach on this week when I started prepping stuff, it went a totally different direction. And so I hope that was the Lord. I trust that that was the Lord, and I hope you'll be encouraged this morning. So the way, the way I want to start this morning is just by asking the question, what do you think the mission of the church is? What do you think the mission of the church is? What do you think Jesus died for? What do you think we're called to do as Christians? Now let me say a word to to some of the non-Christians here this morning. I'm not naive. I'm sure there are some people out here this morning that that don't know Jesus, don't love Jesus. Maybe you got drug here with the spouse or something. And I just want to say, I'm really thankful that you're here. I hope you're blessed by the service and that you encounter God. That's why we show up, to worship and praise God, to encounter and experience his love. But if, if you're here and you're kind of, I don't believe this, I'm glad you're here. And I'm not speaking to you this morning, okay? I'm going to speak to the Christians this morning. And my hope is, you're welcome to listen in. My hope is that maybe what you think it means to be a Christian, we're going to correct that. We're going, to, we're going to hopefully give you a little bit different perspective on what you think it means to be a Christian. And maybe some of you believers out there need to be corrected in this as well. So that's kind of, that's kind of where we're going. But back to my question here this morning, what do you think our mission is? Why did Jesus die on the cross? What is the goal for the Christian? Now, if you've grown up in the church, I'm sure your minds have probably went to Matthew and Mark, the latter part of those books, the Great Commission. The Great Commission, right? I'm sure you're probably thinking, okay, what are we supposed to do? Well, Jesus says in Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, Jesus came to them after he died and rose from the dead. He came back and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now you... Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And then in Mark 16, verses 15 through 17, he says something similar. He says, Jesus came back from the dead, he rose, and then he he spoke to the disciples, and he said to them, Go into all the world and proclaim the gospel. 
to the whole creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And then he goes on a couple verses after that, and he explains what signs we can expect when the word of God is proclaimed. He says that demons will be cast out, that people will speak in different languages. They'll speak in the tongues of angels. He says that believers will be protected from all kinds of dangerous things and that there will be miraculous healings that come along with this proclamation. You can look that up if you want. That's Matthew 28, the end there, and, and Mark 16. It's in there. Write it down. Go, go check and make sure I'm not, I'm not lying to you. It's in there. It's what it says. Now, in light of these verses, I could understand your logic. I would follow along with you if you concluded that the mission for us Christians is to tell people about Jesus. Makes sense. Jesus did say to do that. That is extremely important. It is part of what we're called to do. But if you said that the main mission Jesus has for us is to proclaim him to the world, I would disagree with you. See, the mission for the Christian is not primary, primarily evangelism or sharing your faith with unbelievers. I know what I just said. I'm not a heretic. Hang with me, okay? Hang with me. Let's jump over to another section of Scripture. This is in Matthew 7. It's the end of the Sermon on the Mount. So Jesus goes up into a mountain. He preaches to a large crowd. It's the greatest sermon ever preached. Probably long, but a good one. Jesus is preaching. I'm sure he's holding your attention. Probably better than I can, okay? So he's preaching, and he says this in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23. Write that down so you can go back and check and make sure I'm not telling you lies. It's in there, okay? Matthew 7, verse 21 through 23, Jesus says this. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. All right, now, some of you are probably thinking, see, Levi, you're wrong. God is concerned with us sharing our faith, proclaiming the gospel, telling he is concerned with that. That's his will. That means we need to be proclaiming our faith. We need to be baptizing people. We need to be praying with people. Okay, let's keep, let's keep reading. Verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't, didn't we prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? Verse 23, and then I will declare to them, away from me, I never knew you. You workers of lawlessness, depart from me. See, if the mission Jesus had for us was to prophesy, or another way to say it, was to preach the gospel, proclaim the gospel, share your faith, testify about him to your neighbors, co-workers, and friends. If the mission Jesus had for us was to cast out demons and heal people and do mighty works in his name, then why is it that Jesus can say to those people who did those things in his name, they did those things, they lived out that mission how is it that Jesus can say to those people who were engaged with that mission that they failed? How is it that he can say, get out of my presence? I don't know you. Why can he say that? Well, I think it's because the mission that Jesus has for us is not primarily those good works. The mission that Christ has for the church is to know him. To know him, to be united with him, to live your life with God. Not just live for God, but to do life with God. It makes all the difference of the, in the whole world. 
This is the point. This is the point I'm going to try and make this morning, and I pray that the Holy Spirit will help me make. You cannot live on mission for God without engaging in relationship with God. Let me say it again, because this is so important. You cannot live on mission for God. You can't serve God and do for God if you don't have a relationship with God. If you don't know how much you're loved, regardless of what kind of acts of service you do or don't do, you must first understand in the core of your being, it doesn't matter how you live your life. This is provocative. I know it is. It's called grace. It's called grace. We need to focus more on what Jesus has done, not on what we do or don't do. Because it's on the basis of what Christ has done for us that we can do anything in this world. Most of us miss this. And it's why so many of us are filled with dread and feelings of fear and failure when some preacher starts talking about the mission of Jesus. See, we're programmed to believe that for us to be good Christians, that for us to be accepted, to be liked by God, that we got to perform for him, right? All right, I, I read my Bible this week. I read my Bible this morning. God must be pleased with me. I, I, uh, I haven't read my Bible in two weeks. God must be disappointed with me. He must, he must really not like me at this time. Yeah, okay, I shared my faith. I shared my faith this week. I posted a Bible verse on Facebook. I prayed for my coworker, right? I, I talked about the good things that God is doing with, with a friend or relative. God must really be proud of me right now. He must be really impressed with me. I'm doing my job, right? And some of you feel crushed. You feel defeated because you're constantly reminded of how short you fall in upholding your end of this deal with God. Maybe you struggled this week to talk about Jesus or to pray for anyone. Maybe you're struggling just to believe it all. Maybe you haven't had any spiritual conversations or you, you think back over your life and you think, man, I'm, I don't really talk good. I'm not really good at talking good about anything, let alone Jesus. So you feel like a failure. You feel like a disappointment before God. Church, this is not the gospel. That is not the gospel. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that you could serve God well and earn his favor. That is not what Christ died for. He didn't die for that. It doesn't matter how many times you slip up, how many times you fail, whether you serve God well or you don't serve him at all. What matters is what Christ did for you. He says you are loved, you are approved of, you are cherished, you are adopted, and nothing you do or don't do can ever change that fact. Reading your Bible more or less will not change the love that God has for you. Praying with someone at work, a coworker, a family, that will not change how God feels about you. God loves you. He died for you. And if you're in Jesus, you are a son or daughter. I have three of those. Clark, Graham, and Ellie. They will always be my son, sons, and my daughter. There's nothing that they can do that will ever change that. This is the gospel. When you put your faith in Jesus, when you acknowledge that you fall short, you don't live up to God's standard, and you turn away from choosing to try and do it your own way, you say, I can't do it, I need Jesus, that's called faith and repentance. When you do that, 
You are adopted. You become a son or daughter. And just like Graham and Ellie and Clark can't ever unbecome one of my sons or daughter, you can't unbecome a son or daughter for Jesus with God. He loves you. Nothing you can do or don't do will ever change that. This is incredibly freeing. That's what I want you to hear this morning. Lord Jesus, help us get that at a heart level. So many of you walk around and you are crushed and defeated constantly because you think, well, I'm not a preacher, so God must not love me. Well, I don't share my faith the way that I want to. I don't read my Bible the way that I want to. I don't love God the way that I want to. I don't know scripture, this, that, the other. I don't do all of these things, and so God must not love me. That is a works mentality, and Jesus says, get that stuff out of here. I didn't die for that. I didn't die so you could come to me and say, okay, thanks for doing your part. Now I'll do my part. He says, no, I did it. I did all of it. Come enjoy my rest. Come enjoy the freedom that I have for you. Come enjoy my rest. Isn't it beautiful? Man, it's amazing. It's so good. Some of you are so hard on yourself because you constantly feel like you're not upholding your end of the deal. You're not doing enough. It's crushing you. It's because there's no joy in that lifestyle. There's no joy to be found in relating to God like this. And here's the wonderful and glorious news. That is not what Christ died for. This is not the life that Jesus died to give you. Jesus did not die and rise to new life so that you could try and earn God's favor by being a really good servant. This is not the mission he has for you. He's called you to be one of his children. See, God's mission for you, Christian, is to do life with him, united to him, in communion with him. And this truth is staring us in the face in the Great Commission. You see, we skip over it. We skip over this part. We forget that it's there. We focus on what Jesus said about what we're supposed to do. We skip over the last part there. He does give us some commands about proclaiming this amazing news. He does give us some of those. But then he says, and I will be with you to the very end of the age. See, sure, there are some things to do in this life. Absolutely. I'm not discrediting that. But those things are not our defining mission. They're not to be done in our own effort or apart from God. Knowing and loving Jesus, spending time with him, with his followers. That's our mission. Living for the praise of God's glory. Praising God. Enjoying God. That's our mission. Don't believe me? Well, let's look briefly at a pretty popular Bible story that I'm sure many of you are familiar with. It's a story about two lost sons. You've probably heard it called the prodigal son. Right? But it's really about two lost sons. To understand this story, you have to understand who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to a crowd of religious people. From the outside looking in, these people should be all stars in God's eyes. They look great, right? They're the pastors and the leaders of the Jewish community. They give their money. They tithe regularly. When the church is open, they're there. They have the whole Bible memorized, okay? These guys are the all stars outwardly. Jesus speaks this story to this group of people. If you want to read about it, you can look it up in Luke 15, verses 11 through 32. Luke 15, 11 through 32. It's about a father 
and two sons. There's a young son and an old son. The young son hates his dad. He wishes his dad were dead. So he comes to his dad and he basically says, I wish you were dead because I want my money now. My inheritance, I want it now. And the father is so good and so kind and so gracious. He says, okay, I'll give you what you want. Here you go. Gives him half of the inheritance. And the younger son goes out and squanders it on fast living, right? Prostitutes, all this, that, and the other thing until there's a famine in the land and he loses everything. He spent all his money and he winds up eating pig slop. And he realizes, even the servants in my father's house have it better than I do right now. So he gets this speech around. He plans to go back, to grovel at his father's feet, to beg for mercy, to say, I know I don't deserve to be a son anymore. Will you just take me back into your house and allow me to be a servant? He's walking back home in shame and guilt and condemnation, rehearsing what he's going to tell his dad to try and coax him back into just letting him come and be a servant. And when he gets halfway there, we're told the father has been waiting for his son to come back. Waiting every day, looking out over the horizon. When he sees him, he hikes up his robe and he runs to him. And the the young son's trying to get out his speech that he hurts and he's, he's, quit it. You're my son. Come into my house. Let's kill the fattened calf. He takes his ring off, puts it on his finger. He says, you're not my servant. You won't be a servant in my house. You will be my son. You never stop being my son. I'm so glad you're back. Kill the fattened calf. Let's have a party. That's the grace that God has for us. Doesn't matter where you are, what you've done, right? You slept with prostitutes. You murdered people. You've done all kinds of wicked things. You come back because of Jesus. The father says, come back into my family. It's covered. It's forgiven. You're my son or daughter. That's never changed. Come back into the family. Let's celebrate. You were lost. Now you're found. Awesome. That's grace. It's grace. Undeserved favor. We love that part of the story. No, there's another son in this story. The older son. He sees all the commotion that's going about. He's been faithful. He served his dad day in and day out, working the fields, doing everything a son is supposed to do. And this younger son comes back. He realizes there's a party going on, all this stuff. He asks one of the servants, what's going on here? Well, your son, your, your brother, the one who left, he's back. Your father killed the calf. We're having a party. And he is just beyond upset to the point where he says, he's not going to participate in that party. He's going to throw a pity party over here and out in the field by himself. And the father, because this is who the father is, goes to that son as well. He goes out and he meets with him. He says, what's wrong? I love you. Come celebrate. Your, your brother who was lost and found, he's back. He's back. And he says, all this time I've served you. I've worked so hard for you. You've never even so much as given me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. You've given me nothing. I work day in and day out. I serve you. I'm on this church board and that church board. I give all my money. I serve you. I'm the most faithful servant that you've ever had. You've done nothing for me. And the father says, son, all that I've had has been yours. Always. Anything you wanted, you could have had in my presence. Come and celebrate. Come in. Your brother who was lost has been found. What's the point of this story? The story reveals that God is not chiefly concerned about our service to him, our disobedience or obedience to him. What God really cares about is our relationship with him. You see, neither one of these sons loved their father. 
They simply just wanted to use him. A guy that I read this week, his name's Sky Jathani, in a book, he's, it's called With, Reimagining Our Relationship to God. He says this, he says, both sons were jerks. One just happened to be a little sneakier, to look a little bit more socially acceptable than the other one. See, Jesus is making the point with this parable that God is not primarily concerned with our obedience. What he wants for us is to be with him. Of course, Jesus is not diminishing the older son obedience. He's not diminishing that. And he's not endorsing disobedience either. Jesus is showing that what brings the father joy is the presence of you and me in relationship with him. Having us with him. That's why Christ died. And this is what both these fellows failed to understand. You see, God's gifts are a blessing and his work is important, absolutely. But neither can nor should be replaced by God as our focus. We can fall into both traps of both these sons. Like the younger son, we can build our identities around what we can get from God. Or like the older son, we can try and find our value in how well we serve him. But both are fool's errands because what matters most to the father is not the younger son's disobedience nor the older son's obedience, but having his sons with him. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't get me wrong. Christ did send you. If you're a Christian, you are sent. You are sent into the world as an ambassador. But if you don't know that you're not alone, you'll never be free from fear you'll never be free from a sense of failure that you don't measure up. You see, to engage in the great commission, you must first engage in relationship with Jesus. If you make knowing Jesus your focus, his mission will flow out from you. Church, I could have spent this whole message talking about missional opportunities, about different ways that we could do this, that thing, or the other, apologetic strategies, all of that stuff, but that would miss the point. If you really want to engage in the mission of Jesus, you don't need another evangelism course. You don't. What you need to do is focus on knowing Jesus, on loving him more than anything else in the world. You need to become convinced that God has been good to you in Jesus, that he will continue to be good to you through Jesus, and that he is good all the time, that he loves you that he's for you, that he's with you to the very end of the age. Holy Spirit, would you convince us of this in our heart? You see, if you know, that if you know God in this way, you will speak when it's time to speak. You'll do so with boldness and words of wisdom and power because they will not be from you. They will come from God who is with you and in you and living through you. Because that's what Jesus died for. See, lost people in the world, they don't need to hear another word from you. They don't need to hear another word from Levi. They need to hear from their creator, right? And if he's living with you, then you can speak on his behalf. You can speak on his behalf. Doing life with him is the only way to ensure that when you speak, it will be Jesus who is speaking through you. In that book I referenced, Sky Jathani, the book called With, Reimagining Your Relationship with, with God. He shares a story about the, uh, the late Dr. Martin Luther King I had not heard before. And it speaks to what you will be empowered to do 
once you are truly convinced that God is with you to the very end of the age. This is what happens when you learn to do life not just for God, but to do life with God. When you learn to live this out as your mission and goal in life. He says this. On the night of January 27th, 1956, Martin Luther King heard two voices. The first voice came on the telephone. It wakened him in the middle of the night. Listen, you N-word. You tried... We're tired of you and your mess. If you ain't out of this town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow your house up. Click. Filled with fear, the young Baptist preacher couldn't sleep. Instead, he poured himself a cup of coffee and sat at his kitchen table, clasping his head in his hands. How would it come to this, he thought. Two months earlier, Rosa Parks, 42-year-old seamstress, boarded a bus in Montgomery, Alabama. After three more stops, the bus was filled. The driver, J.F. Blake, noticed that a white passenger was standing and ordered, N-words, move back. Everyone compiled or complied except for Parks. You gonna stand up, Blake asked. No, replied Parks. She didn't move from her seat until the police arrested her. The Montgomery bus boycott had begun. Now, the organizers of this boycott sought the support of the black ministers in town, the youngest of whom was Dr. King, at just 26 years old. 26. What were you doing as a 26-year-old? King was reluctant to get too involved. When he was invited to the meeting, he replied, let me think it on a while. Why don't you call me back? Well, he eventually decided to attend, but he didn't really have a choice as the organizers decided to meet in his church. (laughs) So they met. And this was just the beginning of surprises. At the meeting, King was quickly elected as the president of the boycott committee. In truth, all other leaders had passed the buck to the new kid in town. It all happened so quickly, King recounted, I did not even have time to think it through. If I had, I would have declined the nomination. So within days, Dr. Martin Luther King had become the focus of the White Citizens Council's attacks. Hate mail, obscene phone calls, threats on his wife and his infant daughter. He was a 26-year-old. Almost every day, he said, someone warned me that he'd overheard white men making plans to get rid of me. Then came that phone call on the night of January. If you ain't out of this town in three days, we're going to blow your brains out and blow your house up. King admitted to being scared to death and burdened by a paralyzing effect of fear. Over his cup of coffee, he contemplated how he might leave Montgomery without looking like a coward. I got to the point that I couldn't take it any longer. I was so weak, he confessed. He talked to God. He prayed in the darkness of his kitchen. And that was when he heard the second voice, an inner voice. Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even to the end of the world. The voice promised to never leave me, to never leave me alone. No, never, to never leave me alone. He promised to never leave me, to always be be with me, to never leave me alone, King said. And he knew the voice belonged to Jesus. And in that moment, his fear disappeared. And although he was raised in a very religious home, 
theologically educated. He'd been trained as a minister, went to seminary. That night in his kitchen, that 26-year-old young man experienced God in a profoundly personal and intimate way. And for the first time, he felt the reality of God with him, with him. And King said that inner voice convicted him that I can stand up without fear. I can face anything. I can do all things with Christ who gives me strength. Now, his newfound courage in God's unceasing presence would be tested just four nights later. King's wife and his two-month-old daughter, two months old, they're at home. They're in their house. And King was out conducting a rally for the boycott at the First Baptist Church. He finished speaking, and a church member came up to him and said, your house has been bombed. They blew it up. When he arrived at his parsonage, King found that it was on fire, and the front of his home was completely blown off. And hundreds of angry black citizens were surrounding the house, more coming from every direction. And the white police officers were trying to keep order, but the mob was armed with knives and bats and bottles and guns. King checked and made sure that his wife and daughter were unharmed, and then he pushed his way through the crowd to the smoldering front porch. And he singled for the crowd to calm down. And he reminded that those who had come to do battle, he said, those who live by the sword will perish by the sword. And then to the amazement, of everyone in that crowd, the blacks and the whites. King calmly told the mob, I want you to love your enemies. Be good to them. Love them and let, you know, let them know that you love them. What we are doing is right. What we are doing is just. And God is with us. One witness said that there were tears on many faces. And the weapons were put down, and the crowd began singing, Amazing Grace. King's wife later said, This could have been the darkest night in Montgomery's history, but the Spirit of God was in our hearts. The sight of Reverend King standing on the rubble of his firebond home, calling the black citizens of Montgomery to love those responsible, changed the course of the civil rights movement forever. He had preached about love, Forgiveness and nonviolence before, said one historian. But now, seeing the idea in action, millions were touched, if not converted. But the real conversion did not happen on King's bombed out porch. It happened four nights earlier in his tranquil kitchen. There, or over a cup of coffee, his fear was replaced by faith in the one who promised to always be with him. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for thinking and believing and living as if the work you've given us to do is to convert people or proclaim Jesus to the lost. You told us clear as a bell in John 6 that the work you require of us is to believe to believe in Jesus, the one you have sent, to work to know you and to love you. And Lord, we want to love you. We want to know you more. Would you help us? Help us in this work. And Father, as we love you more, make us useful. Not to earn anything from you, but to experience the joy of being with you 
and being used as instruments in the hands of you, our Redeemer. Help us live out the mission of glorifying and enjoying you forever to the praise of your glory. Set us up as lights upon a hill for the lost to see and know what a treasure we have in Jesus. Father, speak to us as you promised to do, as you did, to, as you did for, for Dr. King. Be with us. Be near us. Give us ears to hear what you want us to do and the faith to obey. Fill us with your presence so we might live differently with joy the world might take notice of. For your glory, we pray. Amen.